Hey, it's John. And Lexi. And we're sitting on my front porch before we record the show. And before we get into it, we just have a little request. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us through our Patreon. This show has never really made money. That's not what we're about. That's not why we're here. We're here to create a platform for people in the food world to share their stories that might not get published anywhere else. But to do that, we have to pay out of pocket every season. All the money that we collect from our Patreon goes to pay our writers. If we make more than that, we're able to pay our illustrators. If we make more than that, we may even be able to pay our voice actors. So if you like the show and how it's made, please consider rewarding all of the hardworking people who make it happen by subscribing to our Patreon. If we get 10 new subscribers by October, we'll send each subscriber a copy of our first ever print zine. We're not asking for a lot. Even just $5 a month would help us pay the contributors who give us these amazing stories. Just go to dirty-spoon.com to find out more information on how to subscribe. Thanks, y'all. Bye. <laughs> From WPVMLP in Asheville, you found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Lexi Harvey. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Black Latex. like the whole world has gone mad. I saw you in a dream again, all dressed in blue, crossing the tide, burning like fire. It's just me and you. You're the sun. I'm the moon. Still bloom. You're the sun. I'm the moon.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Many of you longtime listeners may be wondering who that dulcet voice belonged to that you just heard. Well, I couldn't be happier to introduce you to our new editor-at-large and co-host, Lexi Harvey. There's a lot I could say about Lexi. After all, I've worked for her events and cocktail company for a number of years now. For a while, she was a fixture at a number of local bars in town, and she has an impressive scholastic background to boot. But perhaps it's best if we just let her tell you about all of that. Welcome aboard, Lexi. We're excited to have you on the team. Thanks, Jonathan. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, how'd you wind up here, What what, what, what do you do? Yeah, good question. Um, I am. I'm from Georgia, the southern. I am from a southern coastal town in Georgia called St. Mary's. Um, I run an events and cocktail company. I just graduated from the master's program of critical craft at Warren Wilson. What else would you like to know? I mean, yeah, I feel like that explains like why you're a good fit for this, for sure, because I think it's that combination of culinary background with uh, craft spirit, you know, I guess, I mean, why were you, you, you came to me to ask to do this. Tell me a bit about why you wanted to be here. Yeah, absolutely. The Dirty Spoon has a tagline that really drew me in. It's from the people who make what we consume. And that is really what a lot of my studies have been about, what I've been really interested in as far as being a hospitality worker, Um, the folks who make and work and do the things that we then love and kind of gather around after um, and celebrate. Yeah. So for people who aren't sure what the editor-at-large does, for Dirty Spoon, it's kind of the it's kind of the editor largest show. I'm the editor in chief, and that's primarily because I have to make the final cuts because I edit the show. So I kind of decide what goes in the final piece. But I don't source any of these stories. Most of these stories come from the editor at large. So when that was Catherine's job, she would go track down stories from all over the country, find writers all over the place, and pitch. They would pitch stories to her, and she would approve them, edit them, and then send them to me when they were finished, and I would get voice actors to read them, score them out with music, and that's how Dirty Spoon gets made. So when Catherine left... We were like, what are we gonna do? We've gotta we've gotta find stories. And that is not something that is my wheelhouse. I'm I'm not a great editor. I'm actually dyslexic, so it makes it very hard for me to do that. So when someone like Lexi steps in, it's really a question of who do we want to be the mind of this show? And that's that's Lexi's job now. That's your job now. <laughs> so Yeah, I'm really honored. I mean, I love hearing and collecting stories from others. Um Uh, kind of building relationships with uh, the different bakers in our area, the different bartenders, the hospitality workers. That's, that's my bread and butter. That's what I love to talk about. Yeah. Um, And so it kind of felt like a natural fit and something I wanted to explore a little bit more. Yeah. What do you want to dive into with this show? What are you, what direction are you hoping to take these stories? I am really interested in, again, kind of the, the celebratory moments, um, making making a holiday dinner, making a birthday dinner or something of the like, potlucks, um, kind of the labor that goes into that process um, and how those acts really foster a community and a space that then kind of trickles out into the world in different ways. Um, I want to bring in stories of um, people who may have worked at Black Mountain College who are unrecognized artists and creatives. I would love to bring in stories of underrepresented people in hospitality and food and farming. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And people can actually pitch. I don't know if everyone listening is aware of this, but all of these stories come from 
pitches that are given to us by by other writers and anyone listening is free to pitch a story if you think it is something that fits on Dirty Spoon. Tell us about how you would like to receive pitches. Yeah, um, so far, a, a few of the stories have come from kind of moments and conversations I've had with friends or colleagues where they would kind of talk to me about their day or something that was important to them. And afterwards, I would tell them that that was an important story. They should they should share it more broadly. Um, but for other folks that maybe I don't know, I would love... <laughs> I I like pitches that are kind of those raw ideas and kind of just have the the inklings of ooh like I I saw this I noticed this and I'd like to explore this a little bit more maybe not always a fleshed out idea something maybe in the beginning stages yeah awesome and uh, if you guys want to send those stories in. You can email her at thedirtyspoonavl at gmail.com. Well, Lexi, welcome aboard. We're happy to have you. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be here. <laughs> yeah, and y'all will be hearing a lot more of her in the coming episodes and in this episode. But uh, first, here's one of my favorite new tunes, Dan Reader.
to wonder how many movies have convinced someone to fire up the stove and try cooking something they've never made before. From the pasta-laden reverie of Stanley Tucci's 90s classic Big Night, to the 80s Japanese ramen western Tampopo, or even newer films like Jon Favreau's Chef and the recent restaurant industry sensation of The Bear, it's safe to guesstimate that thousands of people around the world turn to their kitchens with inspiration from these kinds of films each time that they are seen. And you have to believe that some of them cultivate a new passion after trying out what they've seen on a silver screen, even if they've never been gourmands before. When DC journalist and writer Kate Ozipak saw the Meryl Streep reel of Julie and Julia in the theater, it inspired her own adventure in the kitchen, one that has turned into a tradition in her household. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was 2009. I was a couple years out of college, a fresh-faced 23-year-old ready to take on the world, or at least Washington, D.C. I decided to see the movie Julie and Julia, as the screenplay was by one of my favorite writers, Nora Ephron. She directed the movie, too, so I was instantly sold. One August afternoon, I walked down the street to the local movie theater, ordered my usual small popcorn and Diet Coke, and found a comfy seat in the air-conditioned darkness. As the movie began, I was instantly swept into the world of Julia Child and Julie Powell. I enjoyed Julie Powell's parts a lot. Her character, played by Amy Adams, was hard to like sometimes. But Adams made her endearing. As a writer, I dreamed of doing something creative like Powell, and thought her idea to cook every recipe in Mastering the Art of French Cooking while blogging about it was genius. I immediately felt connected to Julia Child, though. I had known a bit about her from the Smithsonian National Museum of American History exhibit of her kitchen, and of course, loved all things French. I never knew she was tall and a bit awkward, six foot two. And as a five foot 11 woman, I felt like I could see myself in her. Meryl Streep's performance as Child is one of my all-time favorites. I longed for a husband like Paul Child, Julia's doting other half. It was ultimately Julia Child 
who inspired me to do something that has become a tradition now, 12 years in the making. I wanted to try to cook one of Child's recipes from Mastering the Art of French Cooking. I started with reading Julie Powell's book, which had the same name as the movie. The holiday season came and went, and it quickly became that often boring time from January until the first hints of springtime around Easter. I wanted to do something for my friends for Valentine's Day, but couldn't figure out exactly what. All the way back in 2010, it often took six months for movies to come out on DVD. Well, lo and behold, six months after August is February. I was so excited to see that Julie and Julia was coming to DVD. It finally dawned on me, why not make that Julia Child dish for my friends for Valentine's Day? I immediately got to researching and decided beef bourguignon, boeuf bourguignon to be properly French, was the best recipe to try that everybody would like. I saved up my money for a few weeks, sent an email out to my friends, and a few days before the dinner, got the ingredients, some egg noodles to serve it with, and of course, some wine and appetizers. Boy, am I glad I started cooking early. The first few years I made the dinner, I was in a studio apartment kitchen. It was tough making things step by step due to lack of room on my stovetop. Thankfully, I eventually nailed down a routine to the dinner and was able to make it with ease by 2012. In June 2013, I moved to a new apartment complex with Brad, the man who would later become my husband. The following February, I felt like a queen in my new two-bedroom apartment kitchen. I blasted the Midnight in Paris soundtrack, loved the romance of the moment, and was relaxed and able to cook so much more easily in a larger kitchen. I was also excited to have an actual dining room area to serve my friends. In my studio apartment, we would have to eat on my couch and use the coffee table as our dining room table. It made all the difference in the world to me to have the space to entertain. It was nice to have more pots and pans to work with, too, since Brad and I combined kitchen supplies. The smell of beef, onions, and mushrooms in a wine sauce with tons, and I mean tons, of butter brought me instantly back to the days when the tradition began in my small studio apartment. I set the table that first year, adding miniature red heart-shaped candy boxes as party favors and setting out Brad's world market wine glasses. Some friends brought dessert, others brought some appetizers. We had cocktails and then tucked into the beef bourguignon made in the biggest pot we had. A friend took a whiff as I took the lid off the pot It smells absolutely divine, she said. That evening, and every second or third Saturday in February, minus 2021 and 2022, thanks COVID, I look around the table of my friends, laughing, smiling, sipping wine, and eating the dinner I prepared for them. It's those moments that make me feel truly grateful. Ever since I saw the movie, 13 years ago, Julia Child has become a representation of home, family, and a sense of coziness to me. Her beef bourguignon has become a yearly love letter to my husband and friends in the form of a meal. As Julia Child said, I think careful cooking is love, don't you? The loveliest thing you can cook for someone who's close to you is about as nice a valentine as you can give. Gina Smith reading Kate Ozipak's Boeuf Bourguignon Night. You can find that story and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. Excuse me if you try now. Wave hello, hello. Or are you running on your own? Are you running all
found yourself in Asheville, North Carolina, the city where this show is hosted, any time between the 90s and now, there is a chance you have either been served dinner, sold a bottle of wine, or read an article by Michael Parker. If not, then you probably ran into him at a local bar. A longtime friend and man about town, Michael is a lifelong veteran of the restaurant industry and still serves at some of the most heavily trafficked fancy bars and restaurants in town. And for years, he's cultivated a stream of service industry cringe stories on his social media feed. Story after story of anonymous yet embarrassingly funny tales from working as a waiter. And for years, I've been cataloging those stories without his knowledge. So when I put out a call for readers for this season of Dirty Spoon and Michael volunteered, I surprised him with three pages of his own anecdotes to read into our microphones. So without further ado, here he is. Michael Parker, reading what we are calling Dispatches from the Front of House. Table set. Check. Candles lit. Check. Fire and fireplace. Check. Lights just right. Check. Bartender in position. Check. Servers looking ready. Check. Double entry doors propped wide open. Check. Customer who sees all that and still asks, Are you open? Check minus. Man, woman, table 220, he says to me, So, uh, tell me about your penis. Uh, what's your name? Michael, I answer. Ah, Michael, nice to meet you. And he extends his hand for a handshake, which I think is a little gross. I say to him, Pinos? Yes, Pinos. Pinot Green, Grigio, Blanc Noir. Do you have Silver Oak? Oh, I didn't know about their Pinot Noir. The Gab. Oh, you mean the softer one from Alexander Valley? The one that... You have that? No. So, uh, how about your Pinots? Do they have acid? Lysergic? What? Sorry, I worked in a winery. Sometimes technical words slip out of my mouth. Well, he points to the list. He goes, how's this one? Oh, the, the Burgundy from Joileau? Old world style? Earthy? What's earthy? Well, you can literally discern the dirt, the soil that produced the grapes. French winemakers there aim to... Does that have acid? Yes, but balanced. Are you trying... Ah, Sonoma. Sonoma's good. This is from Sonoma? Well, Sonoma Coast, it's a really broad area. How's this Russian River one? Estate bottled, five years old, ready to drink. I sold... How's this Atalon? Uh, that Napa Merlot is sold out. I'm sorry, are you looking for a style that's... Well, all this talk about acid. I need to know about the acids in the wine. At this point, I have the feeling I'm being watched. And I'm right. His lady's eyes are fixed on me. It's as if she's bet money I'm going to get flustered. But I'm a pro. She's going to lose this bet. Have you had this Russian River one? Uh, no, but I sold that one the other night and the customer loved it. I'll take that one, what the hell? A few minutes pass and I'm serving the Pinot Noir he ordered. Is this a proper cab glass, Michael? Uh, yes, sir. 
<laughs> I remember this table. They ordered a wedge salad. Wedge salad, split, seats one and two, no dressing, no blue cheese, seat one, no tomato, seat two, yes, tomato, seat one, olive oil on the side. I have a question. Uh, does a lobster cob have lobster in it? Uh, yes, it wouldn't be a lobster cob without it. Now, would it? Hmm? Well, the description doesn't include lobster. Well, true. It could be misinterpreted as a salad made for lobsters, but we don't serve lobsters here. They never have any money. We do, however, serve lobster, and there's plenty of it on the lobster cob. Um, this won't do. There's a TV over the table. Ma'am, you made a reservation for a bridal lunch in a sports bar. May I bring you a drink? Yes, we need it. We had two flat tires on our way here. Wow, what a headache. It's a Rolls Royce. The tires are $1,400 each. That settles it. I'm not getting a Rolls Royce. Um, this foam is too foamy. So, tell me about the sea bass. Well, it's the real thing. Sustainably caught by the rules, pan-seared simply and perfectly with a little of the chef's smoked butter and a minimum of salt and pepper. Is it gross? No. Is it fishy? I have had zero feedback saying anything like that. Does it have the head and tail attached? Is there skin? Ma'am, the Chilean sea bass is actually the Patagonian toothfish, which usually weighs about 20-something pounds when caught. So, no, after gutting, we don't serve an 18-pound fish. We don't have plates large enough for that. Further, we would lose an awful lot of money on that dish. So, what does it look like? A six-ounce filet. The menu's description is accurate. Does the lobster cob come with lettuce? Yes. Well, the description doesn't mention lettuce. Does the aioli contain cheese? No. Is this a dairy allergy? I can alert the chef. No, dairy is okay. I'm allergic to cheese. Suggested resolutions for restaurant customers. Stop asking your server, how are you? It's none of your business. You obviously want to hear dutiful rote answers like fine and great, and you would probably be taken aback by an honest negative answer if that were the case. Asking how are you is manipulative. How about hello? Stop saying your server's name repeatedly. There's no need for you to say that name every time you speak to your server. Some of you say your server's name so many times, it actually gets downright creepy. Stop announcing that you have questions. Just ask the fucking questions. Stop saying you're going to stick with water and stop petting your water glass when you say that. Stop it all. If you don't want to buy a drink, fine. People need to drink more water anyway. Then your server can be annoyed by how frequently your glass needs refilling. Stop saying, I'm good. Oh my God, what the hell does this mean? Your server asked a yes, no question, such as, may I remove your plate? You're good? Oh goody, I'll leave your plate there. Oh, you want it removed. That's right, you're good. They got the best table in my section, on the edge with an unobstructed view. They brought their own room temperature bottle of Biltmore American Pinot Grigio, which was put in ice. They shared a glass from the list in the meantime. 57 minutes later, after they sat, it was time to order dinner. Then he said to me, she's not hungry. I don't remember what made me ask him this. I don't remember if I read his personality accurately or if I really liked the watch. I don't remember, but I simply said to him, nice watch, is it Swiss? And he said to me, no, it's a Rolex. Um, I can't eat all of this salad right now, and I have work to do. 
If you could put the salad in the fridge, I'll get some work done, and when I'm hungry again, I'll let you know. Would you bring me an iced tea, please? Three twenty-something women, three waters, three kids, chicken tenders, three separate checks. Um, we want the jumbo wings, no blue cheese, extra ranch, and what's the C word? Um, can you point to the word you're asking about? And she did. Crudite, I said to her. What's that? She asked. Carrots and celery. We can charge a higher price if we call it crudite. Tell me about the baked potato. All right, this is one of the positive ones. Father's Day night, table six oh one. A father and son. The son may be nine years old. The very well-mannered kid ordered from the grown-up menu two courses: Caesar salad and short rib for forty-five dollars. It was a sweet thing to witness, and made me recall from over forty years ago in Wilmington, my dad taking me to Trails End Steakhouse. He taught me everything that was right about that restaurant: the simplistic menu, the grill, the older waitstaff of men in proper servers' jackets. They happened to also be professionals in other jobs by day. I remember the horseshoe handles on the doors, and that they were once worn by Budweiser's Clydesdales. A Civil War cannonball was the weight that closed the door. There was a wooden Indian standing there as well. Inside, Dad taught me how to order a steak the right way. Result: my present-day bafflement over adults who do not know how to order a steak. But back to table six oh one. The dad called his dad. And eventually, the kid got to talk to his grandfather. Both experiences I lived vicariously through with gratitude and a dose of wistful envy. Allergic Palooza, no milk, no cream, but butter is okay. Um, I'm allergic to dark leaves, asparagus, onions, carrots, celery, tomatoes, and garlic. You're in luck. This is a steakhouse that serves seafood as well. Well, I'm a vegetarian. Farmer Ann's tomatoes—are they dairy-free? Yes, the tomatoes are dairy-free. Do you serve wine by the glass? Said a customer at the wine bar, where thirty-something bottles are open in plain sight, and those are just the reds, and over two hundred glasses are hanging from the rack behind the bar. I'll have the salmon. The chef recommends it cooked medium. I want it well done. I don't want to see any pink. <clears throat> Order: one pastrami sandwich, eighteen dollars. One chicken Caesar salad. No cheese. No anchovy. No Caesar dressing. Sub red wine vinegar. Chicken on the side, eighteen dollars. Add fries, six dollars. We'll have the baked Alaska. It's my wife's birthday. Could you put a candle in it? Having thought I'd seen it all last night in a restaurant, a couple concluded their meal by flossing their teeth at the table. Perhaps I have not seen it all. Michael Parker reading his collection dispatches from the front of house. Today. 
that I think anyone and everyone can attest to. That the best meals you will have in any country are usually the ones prepared by someone's grandmother, mother, or auntie. When travel writer Nikita Efanov wandered through Oaxaca, he made a beeline for a neighborhood restaurant. But despite the clout of the chef at the helm of that restaurant, Nikita found that once again, it all went back to a matriarch in the kitchen. An epiphany that sent him across oceans back to his own grandmother's kitchen in Russia. Here's Joe Marple reading Nikita Efanov's story, Elvia's Hands. The taxicab slowed, swerving right and left to avoid potholes in the unpaved road. Derecho y luego derecha, I told the driver in rudimentary Spanish, careful not to confuse the similar words. Although it was my first visit to Oaxaca, dirt roads accumulated the journeys I'd undertaken before. Every bump precipitated recollections. I interlinked my gaze with the stare of a pedestrian passerby. They inspected my presence inside the cab. The taxi bumped again. Restaurant Alfonsina is a house indistinguishable from its neighbors. A groove tin roof, brown walls, the verdant grass, evincing rich soil. The palette of Oaxaca, surrounded by wrought iron fence, tall enough to deter an intruder, but wide enough to exchange some produce, the morning milk, a loaf of bread, freshly laid eggs. A lone tree stands in the center of the yard. The branches are thin, yet capable of yielding fruit. Two of its apples lay on the ground underneath the swing. I watched it sway from the gentle breeze. The sweet, delicate air pecked me with recollections of early childhood, specifically of my grandmother's country house, the Russian dacha. At six years of age, I'd languish under the shade of an apple tree on that property. Its branches were too low for an adult, but a welcoming cocoon for a child. I could not see much from the vegetated shade, but it felt more suitable to gaze nowhere in particular. The smell of dough emanating from the oven, the clunks of heavy ceramic pots informed my senses. When food was placed on the table in the garden, I'd hear my grandmother call my name. 
my pursuit of discovering food links with my quest for novel sensations. During my journeys, I wrongly thought the most memorable meals were the ones that arrived with a visceral shock. A sheep's head, hair intact, served in a clay bowl in Albania. Noodle soup dotted with tiny snails slurped and crammed elbow to elbow on foot-tall plastic chairs in Vietnam. Nikita, your table is ready, said the hostess in Alfonsina. When I sit down, I watch smoke drift from the kamal, a large circular griddle with charcoal embers underneath. Several women tend to the flame while placing meats, vegetables, and flattened masa, freshly made corn dough, on the kamal. Fat dripped into the embers, illuminating rays of sunlight. Voices hum in the background, not like the usual clamor of a restaurant, but rather with the comfortable vivacity of home. Home cooked. I think of the term as a description of the emotion food elicits rather than the location of where it is prepared. At Alfonsina, domestic is blurred with business. Food is combined with ritual, and I'm reminded that cooking is an action, a process greater than the result. Jorge Leon saved funds to open Alfonsina while working for Enrique Olvera, Mexico's most acclaimed chef. He gained fine dining experience in both New York and Casa Oaxaca, Oaxaca's most famous restaurant. Collaborating with his mother, Elvia, Leon envisioned what is now Alfonsina in their family home. Animals loiter and neighbors come by for some tortillas. The restaurant gate continuously clicks open and close. Wafted by smoke, coaxed with ritual, crafted with care, Alfonsina preserves food through motion. Each molded bowl of masa looks indistinguishable from the last, but it's more significant than any crafted previously. Alfonsina's existence celebrates the perpetuation of knowledge, the type contained in Elvia's hands, the kind that offers generational nourishment like what I witnessed for the first time at age six, my eyes below the kitchen counter, peering up as my grandmother dusted flour on a cutting board for pierogi. There's satiation from a delicious meal, and the satisfaction of a moving meal, a meal that cradles, carries, and sustains. Eating at Alfonsina, the flavors of Oaxaca unite with the sensations of my distant past. My Russian babushka's food and an acclaimed Mexican chef's kitchen merged into a singular entity, the tenderness of nourishment. It's where I live, 
Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Minear, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Pompano, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Black Latex, Widow's Peak, Dan Reeder, Jasmine, Wolf Moon, Monica Martin, and Haley Newswanger. Picks and Royksop, Francois Parisi, Alexandre Duplat, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, Sean Lee's Ping Pong Orchestra, Errol Garner, Ben Lovett, Jersey Dudu Matuzowicz, Georges Delrue, Keith Kinniff, and Goldman, and Mark Isham. Lexi Harvey is our editor at large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is the editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. And Catherine Campbell still keeps the engines running behind the scenes. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. Hey, Lexi, what is what is a $5 Patreon subscription to Dirty Spoon cheaper than? It's cheaper than a cocktail. It's cheaper than a cocktail. It's, it's cheaper than a local draft beer. It's cheaper than a trip to the farmer's market. It is a lot cheaper. It's cheaper than, almost cheaper than a gallon of gas almost, right now. Almost, yeah. And for for just that, you can help support this show that you enjoy that happens once a month. And it's just $5 a month. I think that it's worth $5 to listen to our episode, don't you? I do. And if we got just five people to donate that $5, that would help pay... One of our writers. One of our writers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think think if y'all are interested in uh, helping to get this show made and helping to keep this show on the air, um, you know, $5 a month could could really help us pay the people that contribute to the show and the people who create what we consume. So, yeah, go donate to our Patreon and subscribe at dirty-spoon.com. Thanks. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the show.